0: It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with the co-founder of Rotowire.com and the host of a fantasy show on SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. It's Jeff Erickson, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left-center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are
1: going. Learn to play the winner's way. Cause baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from baseballhq.com. columnist is Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 20th. It's show number 35 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with the co-founder of rotowire.com and the host of a fine fantasy show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Jeff Erickson. We'll talk about coping with injuries, making trades, managing bullpens, as well as looking at some facts and flukes and much more. We'll also have these commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about ground ball, line drive, and fly ball rates for pitchers. And in our Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com prospects analyst Rob Gordon talks about Texas third base prospect Joey Gallo. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? we got to talk some baseball. And we open our Tuesday Tout Edition, as always, with our feature expert interview, the co-founder of rotowire.com and the host of a show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Jeff Erickson. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Always glad to
1: be here, Patrick. Uh, How are you doing?
0: I'm doing fine. Uh, My teams are not doing so fine. And I'll start off by asking you how yours are doing, especially in your experts leagues.
1: Well, it's always uh, difficult because I, I have 12 Roto teams. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's always a loaded question. But on the most part, pretty good, actually. Uh, second place in Tout. Uh, second place in XFL. I think my mixed league labor, I think, is in third. So pretty good. Uh, NFPC is on the rise. I've got three entries there. One draft champions that's actually winning its league. Uh, third and fifth, I think, in the other two. So all around pretty good so far.
0: Do you play in the NFBC main event? I
1: do. That's the one that's uh, in fifth place right now in my individual league, and, and I'm about one, about about 200 overall. So just okay. I got off to a pretty slow start. The last two or three weeks have been a lot better. Made a big surge on uh, Tuesday.
0: And uh, there's what about 600 teams in the overall this year?
1: There are in the main. Uh, there are more than uh, there are like there are fewer than that. There's uh, 425 i think i'll tell you exactly 420
0: okay so you're in the middle of the pack but it's it's generally at this time of year a pretty tight pack is it not
1: yeah uh you start to see some separation already you know some people get off these great jumps um two years ago i had a really strong team i think it was uh third overall by the all-star break before it faded but uh yeah so fades and rushes can still happen. there's plenty of time for that to happen, just like our regular leagues
0: you said you're uh 12 Roto teams overall, How, any of them home teams, like amateur-type uh, events? Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, I've got three home leagues. Uh, one, the, the one that started, it's called and the one that started Roto-Wire slash Roto-News back in the day. Typically, I do pretty well. It's old school, though. It's AL only, four-by-four. Four. Uh, and I, don't, I, I have an atypical team, and it's not so good. I, I don't like its results so far. So i I got to go back to what was doing, back to the fundamentals there. Spent too much on pitching. And it just hasn't worked out that well. Uh, NL only, uh, Keeper League, which is doing pretty well, but it has a ton of injuries. Uh, I'll spare you the tales of woe until we get to your injury questions. Uh, and then um, uh, another one, which I picked up about three years ago because I needed a live draft, and that one's, that one's my fun league. That's the one where I took the chance on Tanaka, took the chance on Jose Abreu, Giancarlo Stanton Tulo. It's, it's, it's a fun team.
0: Wow, if you've got all four of those guys, that must be a fun team. Are you running away with that league?
1: I'm doing well on that one I've got a pretty healthy cushion it's my biggest lead so far
0: you mentioned injuries Jeff and they certainly have been horrendous this year just the other day the sad news Jose Fernandez is on the uh, DL and headed for Tommy John surgery so he may not be back till the middle of next year at best and that's that's terrible news what's the top horror story you have among your teams
2: well, we
1: all get ours eventually. Uh, you know, injury stories are almost like bad beat stories. But that in all only home home league, uh, I I'm the defending champion in that one. We had our keeper deadline a day after the keeper deadline. I lost Chris Medlin, and then I think a, a day later than after that Earl Chapman got hit by the line drive. Oh. I had Dylan G in that one, Bobby Parnell. Um all my closers seemed to get hurt now, Aramis Ramirez, Jay Bruce, Michael Cuddyer. Uh, even Carlos Gomez getting suspended. So just every day, you know, Chase Headley's gotten hurt in that one. Seems like every three or four days I get an injury in that one.
0: Jay Bruce was having off to a terrific start, too. Yeah, well, and of course with Bruce, you know, it seems, and it's probably
1: just a perception issue, but it seems like he has a lot more uh, streaks and slumps than your average player. You know, he's not a steady Eddie. Uh, So, yeah, he he was having a nice stretch. Although, you know, you look at his overall numbers, they're not that great um in fact uh only a 360 slugging so far so i wonder how long the knee was bothering him. he did have this five stolen bases so right um it interesting less power than you're typically accustomed to out of him but more speed
0: you also mentioned that you had a role as chapman so in addition to the insult to your roto teams you're a reds fan so chapman and bruce a, a double whammy on the injury front for you
1: oh yeah absolutely and uh you know it injuries are part of the game though um it just happens you know I caught my stretch early you know sometimes and it do, it doesn 't balance out uh, in an individual league. I think in the long run it's it's kind of like poker the more more trials you have, the more games you play, the more leagues you play in, then yeah it tends to even out in an individual league in a given year it doesn 't really even out that much
0: no it doesn't, but i've Read and heard here on the show, people say if you're going to have injuries, you're better to get them late. You get the better guys out of the free agent pool to replace them. You get you get uh, more time to, to find the guy you need and, and to have his stats accumulate. There, If, if you're going to get an injury, you might as well get it early rather than late. On the other hand, though, if you lose your Jose Fernandez or your Jay Bruce in week three, then you miss him for the whole year and you're going to do with the replacement for longer. So would you rather lo- lose a guy early or late?
1: um... I'd rather late because I think at least you can the the stats accumulation issue. The only problem is if it's late enough that it comes after the trade deadline, you can't do much to react to it there. But then again, say you're in the NFPc N F C you can't trade anyhow, um... and you have less time to catch up on it. Basically, after that, so uh, it it rubs both ways. I think I'd rather have it late, so at least you know, you're, especially with an elite player, you're going to at least accumulate some stats.
0: Now, how do you think the accumulating growth rate of injuries? Uh, might affect the rules in future fantasy baseball formats.
1: I hope not. I hope not at all. Uh, I, I think this is a, a big stretch as it is, but I think hard. Ca- you know, the old legal maxim is hard cases make bad law. I think uh, you know hard stretches here make bad rotisserie law. I'd, I'd rather not uh, you know adjust the game over this stretch here, just because we, we've had a big straight a spate of injuries. I'd like to see it go uh, be uh, measured more as a continuing trend over a like over a decade before we you know l- you know legislate different rules. I think sometimes I think we overreact just because something needs to be done right now, uh, but really it's just you got to write it out.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard various explanations of of why the especially the commercial operators might be looking at ways that they can address the injury issue because. Nobody wants to put up money to play in a league and then have their season scuppered by a, by a really bad injury so that there's an incentive to the uh, commercial operators who want people to stay and come back to allow them to make changes where or to relax the rules in some way so that injuries aren't so devastating. Have you heard of that or thought about that?
1: I'll give you an example. The NFBC, there's been a push here and there to try to encourage them to create a DL spot. And I can see the rationale for it. Um, and in any given year, the luck does not balance out. And so maybe, uh, you know, a team that's got, uh, that is loaded with injuries, they can have a DL spot or two. Maybe that eases the pressure a little bit. But when you do start doing that, and I, I've actually been in favor of that at times, but the more I think about it sometimes, the, the negative to doing that is it, it really takes away from the free agent pool. If everyone is uh, taking 30 guys out of the pool without with putting someone back in, then more often than not, then there's just less to bid on it's less of a playable game uh, you know, my colleague Scott Pianowski always talks about that he'd rather have fewer uh, reserve and DL slots and more guys, more, uh, more guys to choose from the waiver wire uh, more decisions to make I think this game is a lot about making decisions making choices uh, and that includes who to cut and I, I think that sometimes you have to make that hard choice
0: yeah, Scott was on the show and, uh, and was a terrific guest. And he really has, has his finger on something there. I, I agree with the idea that there's too many reserve slots. And of course, old school Roto, the 4x4 uh, format that you mentioned, I play in the same format. American League only f- uh, 12 teams, 4x4. And we are have always stuck with the old rule, there is no reserve list. But you do have a DL, DL unlimited DL slots if you lose players to injury, because you're not really taking them out of the pool. They're out of the pool because they're hurt. And uh, what would be your argument for or against the idea that we don't, we shouldn't have reserve slots at all, and just have DL slots?
1: Well, I mean, in one way, it's a pure game when you have no reserve slots. That means you can't stream at all. You know, if a pitcher is starting, if you have a starting pitcher, will you get his start or you cut him? That's your choice. Um, the The flip side is, you know, it, and I think maybe you're, if you want to stash a minor league or you're waiting for him to get called up. Or you want to have a little bit, of, you know, a little bit of depth? Then sometimes it, the reserve list is a way to go. Um, my four by four is four reserve slots, but no DLs. So it, the reserve slot often functionally acts as the DL spots.
0: Yeah, we have we. Uh... We don't have the reserve, as I said, but we do have a farm list, so you're not obliged to keep your uh, farm players as part of your reserve list. That's a separate thing, but it's a keeper league too, and I I gather that your AL only is not a a keeper league?
1: No, it's a redraft league.
0: You noted in a piece at rotowire.com that you're tired especially of losing players to hand injuries and wrist injuries that are caused by diving in the field or on the bases. What do you think major league teams could or should be doing about this? Should they be requiring or at least strongly suggesting the players slide legs first your leg muscles are much bigger and more capable of dealing with th- those kind of things than your hand and wrist uh, muscles and bones
1: well it sounds great in theory but so often it's instinctual for the players but you know you just want to drill into them a little bit of common sense don't slide in the head first unless you absolutely have to I mean I've seen it happen where there's been you know times when it, when it makes sense you're avoiding a tag that's about the only time uh... But, uh, you know, in the Bryce Harper injury, it happened and he was trying to leg out a triple. Uh, some of that was, remember, he was being, you know, castigated for not hustling enough on a ground ball, a ground out to the pitcher earlier. So maybe in his mind, he's like, I'm going to hustle all the way, all the time, how he ran through a wall last year. Yeah. He's also, you know, he's 21 too. I mean, it's, it's sometimes the common sense gene hasn't kicked in. I know when I was 21, I didn't have the greatest common sense. And I imagine that happens. You know, just because a guy's a professional ball player doesn't mean he's going to have it either. So, uh, you know, it would be great to legislate it. You know, for I shouldn't say be great, but I think it'd be great if teams encourage players to be smart about it, but I don't think there's much you can do to kind of enforce it. Uh, and Billy Hamilton's injury, he was diving after ball. He actually made a heck of a catch on the play. I just is more it's just annoying that he didn't even get a plate appearance out of the whole game as the first inning of the game came out before he even got a chance to hit.
0: Yeah, and uh, I've read that the... Injuries from guys diving in the outfield to catch balls may be a function of the gigantic gloves that they wear because it exerts so much more leverage on their on their wrist bones and on their wrist musculature. I can see that. And may, Maybe that's there, there's something to that. But I, I'm old enough to remember when almost every major league player slid f- uh, feet first, and Pete Rose caused something of a sensation by always sliding uh, head first. And over time, more guys kind of got into that mode. But actually... S- the, I, maybe the problem is that teams are, are, and players, even before they get to the major leagues, are not being taught how to slide feet first. You know, they all, they all seem to know how to do the pop-up slide, but nobody hook slides. And as a result, if you don't know how to hook slide, your, your mindset might be, I need to dive in there because I want to have control of where my limbs are to avoid being tagged. Now, the hook slide allows you to do that anyway, but if you don't know how to do that, then you're kind of stuck having to dive head first.
1: Right, and as Jose uh, Reyes can attest, you know, sliding feet first is not a cure-all. Uh, you can still get her sliding feet first, too. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, there's definitely a decline in maybe the fundamentals. Jason Hayward disagrees. He knows how to slide feet first properly. But uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, it, it happens. Uh, and you're, you're right uh, that this is one of those uh, situations there where, uh, you know, it's a lost art. It's You know, there's various parts of the game that are, you know, that I... I then again, the, on the pride side, we don't see many, too many feet-first sliding catches in the outfield, which is just a low-percentage play, That's so right. there, there's turnabouts there.
0: Yeah, the, it is, and uh, I wonder if there's some marginal gain to be made by, if you're trying to choose between two players, knowing whether they slide hand-first or leg-first might be a reason to pick one guy over the other at at the auction or the draft. It'd be interesting uh, minutiae at that point, but sometimes leagues are one on less. Yeah, I
1: suppose, but I, I think that's just one of those where we, we, you know, usually you make, you're making split-second decisions anyhow, and you're not going to have time to factor in every little thing. Unless you're, doing, unless you're on Larry Schechter-level prep and having such a detailed list of your rankings, uh, I, I think for the most part you're, that's just going to be something that is probably going to pass by. Unless you remember a guy getting hurt doing right. that specific slide, you're probably not going to factor that in the equation.
0: There are also slow draft formats. I don't play them, but there's formats where you don't, you draft once a, di- once a week or once a day or something like that. You'd have plenty of time. Yeah, like
1: the draft champions leagues on NFPC are slow draft, 50-rounders. Hey, uh, I, I did one of those. It started in early February, and we're done in about a month. Um, and you can do some that are even faster than that.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jeff Erickson from RotoWire.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, at RotoWire a week or two ago, Jeff, you had a really interesting and quite entertaining trade discussion with your RotoWire partner, Chris Liss, and you captured the whole process on video, and people should go check that out. But what inspired you to do it on video?
1: It, it, it wasn't planned. It was just uh, I, I, I wanted to talk about the offer and m- mention that because it was right after Harper got hurt. And that was a league, that was a, a league where we had limited DL spots, so I had to kind of trade Harper because I, you know, I had Harper, I had Trumbo, I had uh, Chris Sale, and I had uh, Casey Jansen on the DL. All I had was two DL spots. I couldn't afford two dead spots. So I, I felt like uh, the need to make some sort of deal. And he had given me an offer earlier that day, and I didn't like it, but you know, or maybe a day and a half earlier I didn't like it. But, you know, at the same time, I wasn't getting anything else. I had sent out an email blast at least, so I was like, well, we'll let's talk about, I'll I'll vent about not getting trade offers a little bit there, and we can kind of use that as a launch point there. Talk about trading early in the season, what to do when you have injuries.
0: In an article at rotowire.com that followed up or accompanied the video, you mentioned the importance and value of actually talking to your potential trade partner rather than just using email back and forth. What did you find were those advantages?
1: Well, first of all, you have a quicker give and take. You can kind of feel how close you are. And by the way, I want to thank you for being one of the two hundred people to watch the video. So that was cool. Uh, but uh, you know, it was you know, it to me, it's it's easier. Uh, you you know, you have to be prepared. You have to be ready. But it's also a little bit easier to convince someone of your point of view. You can see just how close you are. You don't have that email dodge. Well, let me look over your roster, and I'll get back to you. And People never get back to you. Right. Sometimes, whenever you got somebody on the hook, it's a lot easier to get something done right then and there. Um, so I like doing it on the phone. Hey, even in person, even better. I've done trades at ball games before. That's fun. Um, you know, on the golf course, you can you can do all these sorts sorts of things and uh, facilitates making a deal a lot easier.
0: You also mentioned that when you first let your league know that you're interested in dealing Harper, you had hardly anyone call you back, even though this was obviously a valuable player. How do you think an owner should react when you put out a general call offering a, especially a premium player for trade and you get crickets in response?
1: Well, I think it generally shows that often the email blast to the league, the, the message board, isn't the most effective way because A, it's impersonal. B, uh, you know, you're, you're waiting on someone else to act. You're, you're reacting after that. You're, you're losing the initiative. Uh, and you're better off is going and looking at teams proposing specific offers and trying to ask, you know, ask for offers. I'm doing a similar thing in my uh, the RotoWire staff keeper league that we have, where I, I won the last two years, but I'm rebuilding this year. All my, you know, I lost a lot of expiring contracts. Guys got more expensive. You know, funny how not having tra- Mike Trout cost three dollars makes it harder to compete. I had to extend him this year, uh, and so you know, he's not the, he's not a ludicrous bargain anymore. He's just a, bar- a mere bargain. Uh, but uh, it's funny how that works. But uh, you, you need to be more proactive. You need to go. You know, don't be afraid to make the first offer. I hate it when people preach. Don't be the one to make the first offer. No, that's a horrible idea. First of all, you're losing the opportunity to frame the discussion. Secondly, um, you're just you're just losing time. You're missing out on the opportunity. You know, you need, if you want to force the action and you don't want to waste other people's time, you give them an offer. Nothing's worse than like. Uh, you know, I, I sent out this hand. Max Scherzer's in play. E- email, and you know, I told. I said, I'm looking for keeper upside. I'm looking for this either top twenty five prosper for this. He you goes, know. so, and so and so he goes, take a look at my roster, see which players you think qualify. No, just make me an offer. Just start the conversation. Don't make you know you know respect other people's time. So you should be willing to go ahead and make that first offer yourself. So you know that's what I'm going to do, and I'll set the framework for that offer. Ma- and that's one of the things that Chris Liss is really good at doing is he always starts with an offer. You know, he's got something out there. Starts the maybe, maybe it's a terrible offer. Maybe you think he's valuing your player completely wrong. But you know what? At least it's an offer. At least it's out there. It starts the back and forth. I really appreciate when someone does that.
0: I do, too, and I've always tried to be that kind of player, or at least say I think I have a way to help you by giving you home runs if you'll give me saves or something like that, and then yeah. mention some names in passing. But the trouble I've always had, Jeff, is, is how to calibrate the offer. And by that, I mean, you don't want to set the your, make your first offer too low because then it's it seems to the guy receiving it like you're trying to lowball him and he just turns off. And at the same time, you don't want to make the, uh, the highest level offer you could because he might just accept. And then, you know, I guess you wouldn't want to set it higher than you would be willing to accept. But you want to try to find that sweet spot where your first offer is not necessarily going to be the offer that works. I guess if it does, that's all right, though.
1: Yeah, but see, then you run the risk of annoying people when you always don't come with your best offer. I'd rather just, you know, you know, you, ha- you know, have what you'd accept, have what you want in mind before you start the whole process. If you're going to have, uh, you know, you know, you, you shouldn't start with somewhere you know the person your trade partner is going to reject it because you don't want to pr- you don't want to waste the person's time. You don't you don't want to insult them. You want to be able to have other trades down the line. There's a guy in one of my leagues always low balls, and I refuse to deal with them after a while, I- even though sometimes. I might get to that point. It's always, a, it's always too much effort. It's always a pain. It's always just like, really? Are you really going to come to me with that offer first? No, there, there's 11 other people in the league. I'm going to go to them first.
0: Yeah, I I under I understand that and it's part of the difficulty in it. A big part of it is understanding how the reaction is gonna play with the person you're dealing with and everybody's different in your league. There are some people who take that low ball offer and they know it's the start of a negotiation and sometimes they look forward to that part of it. You know, they wanna negotiate, it's part of the fun. But other guys, maybe they're a little busier outside the, the league, or they have other things on the go, or they just don't like negotiating very much. Some people don't. And so if you come in low, they just think, to hell with you, as you said, especially <laughs> if you're especially if you're known for, for, for doing that, as your trade guy in your league was. So it, it really is a kind of a um, an intricate ballet between you, your own thoughts, and what the other guy is doing and thinking as well.
1: You know, d- different stories for different folks. I get that. Um realize at least with dealing with me i play in a lot of leagues i don't have a lot of time let's get right to it give me give me me an offer that i might be willing to accept you know i don't don't make me have like four different offers and counter offers down the stretch
0: boy you said it if if somebody said to me what's the in a single sentence describe how to open a trade negotiation i would say make an offer that is at least Justifiable and and could make sense for the recipient, so that he at least has to look at it, and it starts him thinking, and and uh, right. And if I was asked to do it in a long sentence, that was a very long sentence. (laughs) Uh, I've been asking guests about the rapid growth of daily and monthly games, uh, Jeff, and I saw at rotowire.com that some of your readers are actually bothered by the focus on those games, not just by your site, but the focus in general. How do you think the balance of games is going to evolve over the next few years between the more traditional season long formats and these new shorter run games?
1: Perceived focus on, on daily we 've added to our existing coverage that 's the thing that kind of drives me a little bit crazy patrick is it 's not like it's displa- d- daily's displacing anything right at least on the site we 're just adding additional coverage. maybe it takes up a little headline space okay, fine uh, I, I get it on the radio a little bit. I hear that because you know every day there's two hours of uh, right before games dedicated to daily, and I, I could see how that could be a grind. I think the trick for us and it's always a trick is to make it as you know, our coverage in that venue, uh, you know, widely consumable. It's our job to make it interesting, right? I think it's not, you know, if we're just talking about, we don't want to be a tout service saying I like this guy at this price on this site, and that's it. Talk about the player. Tell, why do you like the player? What, what about him is strong? I mean, not, and you can talk about the matchup, but then talk about his fundamentals, too. And find a way to make it more consumable to a wider whole. I think that's the whole key. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm becoming more involved in daily. I, I've immersed myself in. I'm playing a lot more this year than I ever have, um, and partially because it's so much easier to do too. I mean, you can use PayPal now to deposit on these sites. Something that you can't do in online poker. Even when online poker was flourishing, that, you know, PayPal backed out of that genre. So this is just you have to emphasize it's a game of skill. But I understand. Um, you know, long-time players that aren't interested in daily. I mean, I, I get it. Uh, our maxim has always been that you're trying to protect. Baseball is a season-long game; it's a long season, and we're looking for the fundamentals of these players. And you know, we're trying to figure out what they can do over a season, as opposed to what they can do today, what they can do over a week, even. Uh, so I get it. Um, I, I get that uh, disconnect a little bit there, but at the same time, I think daily fantasy sports is a game of skill. I see the same people doing well in these leagues. I think there's a lot of parallels between fantasy and poker, and uh, we try to make those analogies on the air all the time, but I, I think that it, it is truly a game of skill, and fantasy is about is always about two things. It's knowing the player pool, and then knowing the game, and, da- and daily is a part of that knowing the game part.
0: It is, and uh, do you put much stock in short-run player performance? Uh, David Ortiz has four home runs in two games. Do you, do you kind of upgrade him for his next game, or is, that, is it all just too short-run to consider and you have to play the fundamentals every single time?
1: He pounded two bad Twins pitchers, is one the way I looked at it there. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, you do, and I think the one thing is we always talk about buy low, sell high in a fantasy context. It's an exper- in, in leagues that are full of experienced players, it's hard to pull off the buy low, sell, sell high trade. Yeah. It can be done at its extremes. But at the same time, uh, it, it's hard because everybody is, pre, uh, is is taught that. So you weren't going to buy low on David Ortiz in a season-long league, but you could in daily. That's the thing. The prices fluctuate typically, um, and so a proven performer can have a low price for a while. I remember earlier in the season when Miggy Cabrera wasn't going good. You know, he at one point I think was like the sixth or seventh most expensive first baseman. Uh, you can see the disconnect that, between that and fantasy reality there. So you buy him low. Well. That's the that's the time to jump on him before he goes back up. And that's one of the things you learn is that okay, this is a buying opportunity. This is to find find a way to squeeze them in the lineup without being too costly to get other people in there. So you learn a little of the fund, fundamentals of that too.
0: Yeah, I'll just say for my part, I don't play the short-run games. Uh, I haven't tried them yet, and I'm just a little too busy. I think I will at some point, or maybe Ron Chandler's monthly games. They also seem like an interesting compromise position. But here's what I just don't understand. If you don't want to play daily games, don't play them.
1: Right. It's like, if you don't want to listen to this podcast, don't.
0: Hey, 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 hey.
1: No, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but, you know, you, but you get my point uh you know if if you don't want to see michael sam's documentary well then don't watch it that's fine you don't have to be mad that it
0: exists the whole idea is that there's a lot of things going on out there and some of them you're going to enjoy and some of them are going to appeal to you and some of them aren't and just because they exist it's not an affront to you i can see if at some point you are a fan of a site like rotowire.com or baseballhq.com or something and the traditional style games just did start getting supplanted by the shorter term games so that you were um all of a sudden getting you know one third or two thirds less coverage of your format but at the same time then i think the rule still applies stop subscribing and go find a site that suits your needs better i i, I just never quite understand why a new option is perceived as such a threat to the old options
1: right right and i think that's true over time i mean uh, i, I you're right, though, the, and I think there's, you know, a lot more bandwidth than we've ever had before, too. You know, it applies to TV shows. You know, I hate reality TV, but guess what? There's also all sorts of great shows on cable now that I never had access to before. I mean, and not even a uh, premium TV. You could, you know, FX has great shows. Yeah. You know? I love the Americans, for instance. I think it's a tremendous show, and has something just a basic cable subscriber can get. Um, and, you know, our choices are just amazing right now, and I think that applies to what we do in fantasy. I mean, I, I think that there'll be other formats, too. I mean, remember when head-to-head was the big uproar? Oh, I can't play head-to-head baseball. Right. Or, you know, points leagues. Well, guess what? Lots of people do that. They're porting over from fantasy football. They're porting over from online poker. You know, they're looking for various outlets, and how they're we're just growing the pie. That's all this is.
0: You mentioned uh, that these things change over time, and I wonder, uh, it's kind of an unfair question, but I'll throw it your way anyway. In 10 years' time, is the mix of daily, monthly, yearly going to be substantially different, do you think? Or will it all just settle out more or less uh, one-third, one-third, one-third? What do you think is going to happen in the longer term?
1: All depends on the legal climate. Uh, daily fantasy sports is a little bit unsettled in that respect, that we don't have pure definition, whether uh, it. You know whether it's been adjudicated as a game of skill and 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 all de- and all jurisdictions. A lot of states you can't play it right now. Will that change, or will more states crack down, or more, or will it become more open? That's a, that's one of the questions I want to see. The fact that uh, some, like like New Jersey, is going to be offering daily fantasy football in their casinos. You know that to me is you know interesting. It, it's there are pros and cons. or is it Delaware? I think it's Delaware actually. Uh, there's pros and cons to it. There, I think it's great that there's all this access, but you know, the fact that these organizations are getting involved might also raise some eyebrows. And you know, let some Congress critters might get more involved in seeing if they can try to you know either get their hands in the pie, right. or if they can want to just ban it altogether, depending on their bent
0: yeah it's hard to see uh, any state government uh, <laughs> turning down an opportunity to make money out of it as long as well, they depends get depends on who's
1: paying the other money I mean that this all right. the money that uh, in the case of Arizona it's the Indian casinos um, they're they, they're feeling they're finding it somehow to be a threat so that's why legislation hasn't passed they're trying to carve it out as a game of skill
0: yeah that's true and uh, and I talked with Glenn Colton a couple of weeks ago here on the show and he's pretty firmly of the opinion that it has been found a game of skill and will remain so, that that is the prevailing legal position in the industry and in governments, and that he doesn't see anything happening to change that. That's what I think
1: too, but it's going to be, you know, I I think it'll take time.
0: Yeah, I think it's less a game of skill than the yearly version is, but not so much less that it's like rolling dice. And, And interestingly, you mentioned poker, and that is the perfect analogy for it, because... The cards, you can have the cards fall either way, you win, you lose. But in the long run, you win if you have more skill at managing your money and managing the odds and so forth in a game of poker. And that's exactly the same if you play a daily game like daily fantasy baseball every day.
1: Right. Well, I think in almost anything, the longer the term, the more skills involved. But, you know, and that's why I think keeper leagues, you know, dynasty leagues, you know, it require a different skill set too, and, and or an, an additional skill. I think that that's the thing is you're just adding another layer of complexity on top of that. So, yeah, I, I think that's necessarily true.
0: Yeah, uh, hundred and eighty days of a regular season playing in one league, making one set of decisions or a relatively limited set of decisions in a traditional league, is a skilled game. But if you play a hundred and eighty days in a row in a daily fantasy game, making twenty three decisions per day. Really, you could argue it's more skilled. Yeah, I think so. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Erickson from RotoWire.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, John Axford, Jeff, is apparently out as the closer in Cleveland. The carousels continue. Uh, They're going to use a committee for the time being. Terry Francona says, how would you advise fantasy owners to manage any kind of unstable situation that involves a committee or uncertainty as to who's up next, including the, the incumbent? And how would you advise us in particular to play this Cleveland situation?
1: Well, you know, we like to, it, you know, I'll, I'll use uh, the uh, talent, opportunity, and guile uh, method that uh, Ron has introduced countless times over at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, and you can use that to a certain extent, but, you know, I think opportunity is always the biggest key. As try, you know, it could be whoever converts the first save, right? So in the case of uh, Cleveland, Shaw got the first chance. Did well with it, and he's a good pitcher. He has good skills. Maybe Cody Allen has slightly better skills. Uh, he's the one that everyone has owned to begin with. In fact, I, I, in all the leagues I played, Allen was already owned. I never had a shot at grabbing him. Uh, Shaw was available in a few, so I took a shot at him uh, because sometimes you just have to take a chance uh, and hope that the opportunity holds for a guy, especially when you know, it's not like he is uh, taking in, uh, bringing in a pretty awful skill set to begin with, but. Uh, you know, I, I and so in this particular case, I'll take the shot on a shot if I need the saves. Uh, other other bullpens, maybe not as much. You, I, I know, you, you know, like you go on to ask about the White Sox as well, and sometimes it's okay to ignore a team situation too. If you find that they're all flawed, maybe and maybe it's just not worth it to chase them, especially if they're going to spread those saves over a number of teams. Maybe the White Sox are the best example of that Take, bring in Houston or bring in the Mets. Maybe it's not worth chasing away, you know using a third of your FAB money or a quarter of your FAB money chasing various closers on that team. I know a lot of money has been spent on the Mets bullpen, and we have no clear definition still six weeks into the season.
0: I did grab Matt Lindstrom in Out Wars because I needed saves pretty desperately, and I gambled on Lindstrom because he just seemed like the front runner, and and it was totally the, that was a decision, as you mentioned, that was totally based on opportunity. They gave him the ball, and I thought, well, you know, if he runs with it and and does okay, maybe he picks up some saves. I think he's got me five so far, which is. Not bad. I, I didn't spend that much of fab on him because I thought, well, here's a, one of those situations where nobody's going to bid very heavily on him because he really isn't that good. Yeah, you know. Right. But, but at some point, if the guy is standing there on the mound in the ninth inning, you've got to say, here's a guy who can help me even in the limited way of, of a guy who just gets saves despite so-so skills and so-so other results.
1: Right. And plus, he has an utter, they have an utter lack of viable alternatives right now. Right. Uh, Nate Jones on the 60-day DL. I, I think he might have mentioned Frank Francisco, but really. Uh, we saw the, the rocket shots he was given off to Brandon Moss the other day. Uh, I don't think anyone really considers him a viable threat at this point in time. Maybe later, because he's got the experience. Uh, but there's no one really in that bullpen that scares me. So, if you, you know, you should be okay. There might not be a lot of safe situations to begin with. Maybe Nate Jones, when he comes back, is some might might be a threat, but maybe they move Paulino back into the bullpen where he probably is better off. Right. You know, these are things that maybe could happen down the line. But right now, you know, he's gotten medium job security, I think.
0: Yeah, I think the no alternatives is also something that gets uh, underappreciated as far as that kind of decision-making goes. It's quite a lot different, for instance, that when Jim Johnson lost his role and you look at that Oakland bullpen and there was like five guys that that you said have – the skills or have the talent to do the job the only question is going to be the opportunity and then they they roll it around and roll it around and you you really can't spend like 25 percent of your fab on any of them because any of them could gain the role or lose it with one bad outing
1: yeah we're on our second revolution in oakland too we've gone through full circle once and now johnson's lost again and it might be Doolittle again and uh... You know, Doolittle's been fabbed, dropped, and fabbed back again now, in Al Tower. So that's where we're at with him. Um, at the end of the day, he's got the best skills of that group, though, too. So I, you know, I still like him. The best handedness works against him a little bit. He had one horrific outing in Houston where it was a little unlucky, some dribs and drabs in that outing. Um, so maybe he's the guy, but maybe Jim Johnson stabilizing is just fine his next time out too. You never know.
0: Do you wonder if at some point any team is going to look at the closer by committee and realize? And I've asked guys on this show before that the way they're doing it really doesn't make a lot of sense th- in, the, in the pursuit of the saves statistic rather than in putting your best pitcher in the best situation to win the game based on leverage index and so forth. Is, is the merry-go-round in so many bullpens eventually going to get somebody somewhere in the major leagues to go, you know what, let's just try a whole different way? Well, I think the Angels quietly are doing this, and hard to believe it's the Angels, but Mike Sosha actually has a history of kind
1: of juggling bullpens like this before. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, he did the very same thing. Uh, Scott Downs got some of the save chances. Other pitchers did, too. Well, you notice that uh, Freire and Joe Smith have both had saves recently. Freire got the hole. He pitched the eighth inning uh, in the uh, Wednesday afternoon game against the Phillies, and Joe Smith came in to get the save in a three-run lead. But earlier, Freary got the save in a one-run one, run, one run game against Toronto. So, you know, it kind of, maybe what the situation calls for. Maybe in one situation he wants the strikeout. Maybe in another one he wants the ground ball. Maybe, you know, he trusts, you know, one with a three-run lead, another at a different time. You know, maybe that's the whole point is not to announce it and shout it to the world that we're trying something different. Just do it. Right. Um, and it, maybe he talks to his as really pitchers individually, but, you know, I think teams screw themselves by going with the traditional mindset. We have to name our clothes and we have to have this specific role because that's when, uh, um, you know, these guys become more expensive. Um, you know, granted, I think the cost of your top setup men have gone up recently too. But I, I think that, I think hey, it save themselves some money by uh, looking at this a little asymmetrically.
0: Until the, uh, until the lawyers on the player's side start figuring out how to explain to the arbitrator what a uh, leverage index means and how it matters and so forth, and then they'll start getting paid what they're worth. Because really, a guy who's capable of being a, a coming in with guys on second and third and one out and getting out with no runs is more valuable than a guy who r- rings up a save on a three-run lead against the seven eight nine hitters uh, that happens all the time and and of course, of course it drives it drives everybody crazy who follows the game uh, it's going to be interesting but there's a lot of still it seems like when i listen to games especially and you get an ex-pitcher or an ex-catcher is the color man and they still insist that there's something to be said there's some advantage to be gained by everybody in the bullpen knowing his role i'm the seventh inning he's the eighth inning, Joe's the Joe's the ninth inning, and if everybody knows that, they derive some advantage from it. Can you imagine what it could be? I think it's mentally,
1: psychologically more than anything else, and that's one where, you know, I have, you know, it, it, it's something where I have no experience. I can't speak to it. You know, we have Jensen Lewis write for us, on, and he's been on our show a number of times, and he believes there is something to the ninth inning being different than any other inning, not just in, that it, it that it takes a certain mentality to handle the ninth, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but the fact is they believe in it. If, it it's sort of you know it, it's kind of a placebo effect for baseball. It may not be it may not be true, but if they believe in it, it is true.
0: Yeah, that's right. I also heard a better explanation once. I actually called into a MLB show years ago on Sirius, and I was talking to Rob Dibble about it, and he said from his point of view, the the problem wasn't so much that he wanted to know what inning he was in, it was the difficulty, logistically, of getting him up and warmed up at the right time. Sure, you know, and, sure,
1: and that, that excuse has been used with the role Chapman before, for sure. Some pitchers take longer to warm up, but I don't know, I mean, hey tell them isn't it the job of the manager and bullpen coach go start warming up
0: it is but i'm thinking more of a situation where the starter's kind of coasting along and then all of a sudden you know bang bang two first pitch singles and and you've got a guy at first and third and nobody out and now you really want your best pitcher in the in the game but he needs you know 25 pitches to warm up or whatever uh, a guy needs you you can they need to find ways to train him to warm up quicker yeah, and that that could be true as well. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Erickson from Roto-Wire. .com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. And Jeff, during the season, we ask our experts to talk about facts and flukes, as you know. And I'd like to start with overperforming hitters. Some of these guys, regular listeners will remember their names, but I'm still curious about what you think. Of Melky Cabrera, he's off to a six homer, 17 RBI, four stolen bases, 329 batting average, looks really good, almost 30 bucks worth. Is he a fact or a fluke at this level?
1: Well, what is Melky Cabrera's true baseline, anyhow? We have a breakout year in 2011 with Kansas City where he hit 305 with an 809 OPS. Uh, the following year before a suspension with San Francisco, he was hitting 346 with a 906 OPS. And last year he fell back to earth. Everyone was like, okay, this is the real Melky 279. 279, you know, 682 OPS, no power whatsoever to speak of. But it turns out he was playing hurt. Right you know, and he, you know he went through a pretty significant injury. So what really, truly is Milky's baseline? How you know maybe he's just performing, he's not even overperforming. He's in a good ballpark and a good lineup. He's healthy right now, doesn't have that shin issue. You know maybe this is the true Milky. I, I think a batting average is a bit of a fluke. Uh, I don't think he's going to continue to hit 327, but man, I'm not really going on a limb there when you, the guy's got a 365 bat, but, but he's, he's faster again. He can run a little bit better. Last year, he couldn't run at all. And this year, you know, he's moving around a lot better. Four stolen bases after two all of last season. I think that's an, you know, it's not a perfect proxy, but it's a good indicator that he's moving a lot better. And leg hits, leg hits are part of his game. So, uh, you know, I think he's mostly a fact.
0: For the Mets, Daniel Murphy's also near $30 with eight stolen bases, a three twenty average. He's even popped three homers, and he has 17 RBIs as well. What do you think of Daniel Murphy, fact or fluke?
1: Yeah, and it's funny, uh, with guys that are breakout or Overperformers, I want to believe, so I tend to list them as fact more often than not. I think it's one of my blind spots, uh, even though I know the regression beast is nasty and unrelenting. Uh, but we are asking last year, when he stole 23 bases, is that for real? Is he going to come back down? And I projected, you know, kind of coming back. I had him for 16 this year. I, it looks like I'm going to be wildly under underrating him here a little bit. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to continue to hit for a whole lot of power, uh, but hey, he's still 29, uh, in, you know, turned 29 on April 1st. So uh, he's in that nexus where a power spike could happen. This is, I mean, the, the traditional model suggests that players age 27 to 29 have their power breakout. It's possible that this is it, but three homers, you know, one, a, any one given homer can totally skew that a little bit too. So I'll say that the power is a little bit of a fluke. I don't think he hits 318. Uh, you know, his ISO is... Uh, You know, it's it's not that much higher. It's actually 147 versus 129 the year before. So I think that the stolen bases are a fact, though. I mean, the fact that he was able to do it last year when we were wondering if it's real and now he's doing it again, I'll say that part's a fact. I think the batting average is a bit of a fluke.
0: Nolan Arenado came into the year with a lot of people looking at him as a possible breakout, and he looks like it so far, 6-26-1 with a three fifteen batting average, mid-$20 value. Nolan Arenado, is is this the real thing? I'll tell you about it,
1: Nolan Arenado, one of the things I like about him is he's so good defensively. Uh, at least his range is amazing. He's had some, like, laps and concentration errors a little bit on some throws, but for the most part, uh, you know, he, he's just such a plus defender that it allows him to work, you know. He never had to deal with sitting during his slumps because he's such a plus defender, and I think that's one of the things I like. You know, I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, the big jump and slugging is probably a bit of a fluke. I think that'll fall back a little bit. Uh, you know, Also, a 28-game hitting streak tends to boost your batting average. Uh, I'll say that he probably comes back to about, you know, he probably hits about 290 the rest of the way, 280, 290 the rest of the way. I don't think he continues at a 315 pace. Uh, his, his overall numbers will maybe end up being around 295, 300 at the end of the year, though.
0: Justin Upton, one of the favorite uh, pastimes of Roto and fantasy baseball experts in the preseason was predicting Justin Upton 25 bucks so far he's got three home runs only but he's stolen eight bases and he's hitting 320 but he's striking out more than a third of his at-bats this really looks fluky to me but what do you say
1: um yeah I mean well uh, Justin Upton I mean we've seen in the past that you know he had a huge April last year you know, I think we always expect because he came up so early, age nineteen, held his own right away. As you know, in, in, in not held his own as a twenty-year-old, and then an started you know, blew up at age twenty-one. We thought, okay, this guy's going to be a monster in his career. Uh, but maybe this is as good as it gets. You know, Jeff Zimmerman uh, wrote for Fangraphs in of the off-season, uh, talking about how the age curve has changed a little bit. That you know, not all breakouts happen age twenty-seven, age twenty-six, or twenty-nine. Sometimes you're as good as you get when you first get called up. And that might be the case a little bit with Justin Upton. Once you get established as a major leaguer, you know, we're expecting this big explosion. Well, maybe maybe it's as good as it gets, that, that 25 to 30 home run range. I think that's kind of what we're looking at with Justin Upton.
0: Switching over to underperforming hitters, Zach Cozart, um, one home run, he's hitting 190, he's minus 12 bucks. Uh, he doesn't look like any kind of player. Is he a fact or a fluke at this terrible level?
1: Ugh. Now you're picking on me as a Reds fan.
0: I'm a Reds fan.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, I you know, I, I think he's ill-suited to be a two-hitter. I think he's ill-suited to be an eight-hitter because he's not that patient. He doesn't see that many pitches. Um, and I, I think that it, it's coming back to haunt him a little bit. So I think his struggles are a fact. I, I, I was wrong earlier. I was kind of high on him, maybe having a little bit of a power, maybe not being stuck in that number two role. Uh, and having the well, not being stuck there, it's a good role to have. But you know, having that mindset that I have to be this certain type of hitter, well, I don't think it works for him. And I, I don't know. I'm kind of getting nervous about him. I have him in a couple spots, and I'm not happy about it.
0: Daniel Descalso is uh, also at minus twelve bucks. He's hitting uh, 175 got a couple of RBIs in a bag and uh, really just doesn't look good at all, and he's, he's never been a tremendous fantasy contributor, but this is a really uh, setting a new low. Is he just this bad?
1: Yeah, he, no, he's not. He's not playing on a regular basis. Uh, it was good moments and bad moments. That's what happens with uh, you guys that are utility players, though. Too, you know, the the skew, is, the sample is skewed quite a bit because you're not playing regularly. Uh, now, Colton Wong is back with the team, too, so the chances for him playing are, are dropping even farther. It's going to take an injury to Peralta for him to play a lot. So, you now that you're relying on him, but uh, he'll he'll be better than this.
0: Manny Machado came back, and uh, Baltimore Orioles fans and his owners in Fantasy Leagues breathed a sigh of relief, but through 50 plate appearances, he has one home run, a solo, no other RBIs, he's hitting under 200. Now, he's coming back from knee surgery, and knee surgery can sometimes affect power as well as foot speed on the bases, so the bags, you understand, is the power also a concern because of the knee surgery, and how confident are you of Manny Machado?
1: Remember when Joey Votto came back from his knee injury, a whole half of the season was uh way underperforming in terms of power. I think this is similar to Machado. shadow. So it, the fact that he's struggling, I mean, I mean, that he's struggling it isn't really a fluke. Uh he might have hurried to come back to for that matter, but you also said one other key thing, 50 plate appearances. You know, this is where uh you're talking lo- baseball's a long run game. And he'll be fine in the long run. Just uh, you know, before his injury, are wondering when's the power going to come. We saw those Devils. Are they going to turn a homer someday? And I think they will with him. But we just got to realize it's not going to happen overnight either.
0: Overperforming pitchers. We'll start with the Cincinnati Reds' uh, feel-good story. I had Johnny Cueto last year in Tilt Wars and he was hurt and he didn't do well and it was a disaster. I got him off my team this year and, of course, he's maybe the best pitcher in baseball so far. 143 ERA and 073 whip. He looks great out there. But there's an injury risk in the back of everybody's mind. What do you think of Johnny Cueto as a factor of fluke?
1: Well, I think it's funny that, you know, there's a lot of talk, oh, he's going to have to change his delivery because that's what's gotten him hurt. No, he didn't change it. It's still the same. Maybe it's not quite as exaggerated. It's Not full Louis Tiant, but he's still doing that, that full body turn. And, you know, the strikeouts, you know, were starting to come, and even a little bit in 2012 and then last year. And when he had his flourishes before, before the string injuries, he was striking guys out uh so i think he i think he's a fact uh you know i i think yeah there's there's an injury risk of course there is but so is every other pitcher as we've seen this year so you know i, I think that gets overplayed a little bit so i'll say he's a fact
0: scott casimir was a top draft pick a few years ago and he really struggled found himself almost uh, completely out of baseball found his way back and now look at him 228 era he's got a whip under one scott casimir a factor a fluke
1: not to the extent that he's pitching right now, fluke. I think that the the, the uh, long toll of the season uh, will uh, affect his numbers a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, there's that big whisper campaign about you know his off the field lifestyle and all that. He's matured a little bit. Maybe he's taking better care of himself. I think pitching in Oakland certainly can't hurt. You know that huge expansive territory, you know foul territory there. All that good stuff. A uh, good place to pitch. But he's a fluke a little bit. I mean, he's still going to be you know. Well, to say that a guy's going to be a 335 uh, ERA guy instead of whatever he is now. I mean, just because we're calling a fluke doesn't mean he's still not going to be good.
0: Jordan Lyles has 5 wins, a 266 ERA and a 109 whip, one of the better pitchers in baseball is Jordan Lyles for real in Colorado? Not
1: yet, no. Uh Diane Firstman was on our show, she uh from espn.com the Sweet Spot blog that she does. Uh we talked about Lyles a little bit. Uh He's a better pitcher now than he was before. He's got a lot better defense behind him. The Rockies have some, and we talked about Arenado's defense. Detroit Tulewitzki's a plus defender. Uh, They're getting good defense behind him. That helps. He induces uh, uh, ground balls at a 3-to-1 rate. Not that ground balls are always necessarily good, but in course field, I'd argue to be pretty good. He's also had pretty good uh, opponent selection, too. Uh, and for instance, even when he faced the White Sox, he caught him on a night when it was really cold in Coors Field. He's, ironically, he's been better on, at home in Coors Field than he has been on the road, but we're talking about six, seven starts here too. Uh, I, I think a regression monster's going to come and hit him. I'm not really going on a thin limb on that one, though.
0: I'm going to make a prediction. You might say the same about Dallas Koikel of Houston, but he's got four wins. His ERA is right around three. His, ERA, his whip is right around one, and he's got 47 strikeouts in 50 or so innings. Uh, Dallas Koykel, any chance this is for real?
1: I think there is a chance he's for real, actually, Patrick. Uh, I, I, I voted with my feet on this one. I picked him up in the NFBC. Uh Actually, I picked him up, dropped him when he had that start against the knowing he was starting against the Tigers and I desperately needed the spot, and then we picked him back up again and started him against the Rangers this week. That start in Detroit last week opened my eyes a little bit there. It wasn't just a, uh, opponent selection. It just it wasn't just a matter of facing the Mariners and Safeco. It was a matter that this guy can miss bats. and. You know, all things being equal, I'll take my chances on a guy that can do that. And, you know, he's he's running good right now. It's as it's as, as good as it gets. He's going to probably regress some, but regress to what? Is We always ask that. It's not just merely that he'll regress. You can regress and still be very valuable. And I think, you know, he's going to have a team context issue. He's going to have problems getting good run support and perhaps even good defense behind him. Although I'll say this, having Matt Dominguez out there at third base certainly isn't a bad thing. Uh, and Jonathan Villar can pick it too so I think that is that that's even getting a little bit better too so I think he's mostly a fact
0: and the underperforming pitchers let's start with Clay Buchholz Uh, another bad outing recently he's got an ERA over six uh, a whip too close to two for comfort and 27 Ks in just uh, 36 innings so um, down from his past a little bit is Clay Buchholz coming back ever or is, is this the new baseline?
1: And I kind of, well, I don't think this is the baseline necessarily, but, it, you know, what he did last year certainly is and I think. So uh, I question health on this one a little bit. I, I wonder, you know, what sort of pitcher he is right now. But, yeah, he, this is a bad stretch for him. I'm checking his velocity right now. I think that's one of the things I would look for as a proxy. Um, it isn't hugely down. It's down about a mile from last year. It was 91.9 was his average fastball last year. It's down to 91.0 right now. So a little bit there. Uh, Phipp suggests that he's running a little unlucky, but still, even running unlucky with a three eighty nine BABIP, it's still, you know, an ERA over four. I think that, uh, there's some problems still here to adjust, uh, and he's nothing more than a spot starter for me right
0: now. Jake Odorizzi finally got a win the other night, but he's still struggling along. He's around six for an ERA and 174 for a whip. He does have 37 strikeouts in 33 innings, though, and, uh, 16 walks, so the skills seem to be there. Why can't he get results?
1: Well, he's learning how to pitch at the major league level. I mean, when has he ever been good at the major league level? Uh, he's had his little pockets, you know, like the start against the Mariners on Wednesday. But at the same token, uh, <laughs> it seems like the Mariners are our go-to stream opponent, by the way, especially in Safeco. But uh, I would suggest that uh, you know, a guy, you know, both him and Buckles pitching in the AL East with less than dominant stuff. Uh, I'll pass. Let somebody else take that chance on when he's going to be good. Even in an AL only league, I think I can do better.
0: Cole Hamels is striking out a batter per inning. Uh, another guy who had a really difficult part year last year seemed to be turning it around. But right now, a f- ERA well over five and a whip up around 170 to show for it. Is Cole Hamels really in trouble here?
1: No. Last start, he struck out 10 batters in seven innings. Uh, I, I think this is a last best chance to buy low on him.
0: All right. And uh, just finally, we talked about the Houston Astros. George Springer got called up, and I'm curious what you think of him in the short run and in the long run.
1: Love the long run because he like guys that can hit for power and run. Short run, I'm pretty concerned. 40% of strikeout rates tend to do that. Uh, you know, I, I think he's going to have a hard time hitting for average. Uh, he'll, he'll get better over time. The strikeout rate will improve some, but you know, you know, he could go Drew Stubbs on us, too. It might take him five years. <laughs> it might take him a half a year. We'll see. But, uh, you know, the, you know some, he's a better prospect than Stubbs ever was, of course. Yeah. But at the same time, we, we've seen all along that uh, controlling the strike zone has always been an issue for him. So, exciting player to watch. He's going to have his good moments. But there, you're also you are taking a calculated risk with your batting average when you go with him.
0: Jeff, it's been a treat. Uh, really appreciated. Tell uh, our listeners where they can read more. Jeff Erickson.
1: Sure. Uh, of course, rotowire.com is the first place and always there. And we're all, we always offer a free 10-day trial. Check us out, rotowire.com slash free for a 10-day trial. You get access to the site. You can hear me on XM, Sirius and XM sets uh, XM87, Sirius 210, Road to Wire Fancy Sports Today broadcast Monday through Friday from 11 to 2. Typically, I'm personally on Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Occasionally, it changes up. We do have a weekend show as well on Saturdays. And I'm on Twitter all the time, too. It's the world's greatest uh, sports bar, at Jeff underscore Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N.
0: All right, Jeff, thanks very much for doing this. I'll try to catch up with you again during the year. Fantastic. Thanks, Patrick. Jeff Erickson is a co-founder of rotowire.com, the only two-time winner of Baseball Writer of the Year from the Fantasy Sports Writers Association, and as you heard, a SiriusXM XM Fantasy Sports Radio regular Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Metric Minute and Minor League Minute. They're coming up, and it's Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1 pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rocious down from third. Rocious makes the catch. Ball game over! A perfect game! A perfect game for David Cohn! The third time! Works like a charm! It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history! Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Dan Becker looks at possible speed faders in his Batter Buyer's Guide. Stephen Nickrand looks at early pitch mix changes in the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide. And Facts and Flukes analyst Ryan Bloomfield, also our Metrics Minute commentator, assesses the year-to-date performance of Jason Hayward, Jordan Zimmerman, and others. Plus, we have all the regular analysis of playing time, buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and much more. In all, it's fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to tell us about ground ball, line drive, and fly ball rates for pitchers, is analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This
3: week we'll continue to look at ground balls, line drives, and fly balls, uh, but this time we're going to take a look at how we can use that information when evaluating pitchers. Uh, Just like hitters in last week's Metric Minute, uh, pitchers also set their own ground ball rates, line drive rates, and fly ball rates over time. So usually the outliers in one season tend to regress back to that own pitcher's baseline, which is usually a a rolling three-year average. Um, In general, for starters, we typically like to see high ground ball rates. Uh, Since grounders can really never become home runs, a pitcher might allow a few more base hits here and there, but that's better than giving up fly balls and home runs that can wreak havoc on that ERA. Just to give you some context, in 2013, the average ground ball weight was 45%, line drives were 20%, and the average fly ball rate across baseball was 35%. A couple uh, hit rates or batting average on balls in play for each one. Ground balls uh, were 28%, so 28% of ground balls ended up becoming hits. Line drives were by far the highest, 72%. So, as a pitcher, we obviously want to see that line drive ball or that line drive rate uh, stay low. And fly balls were the lowest, only 15% of fly balls fell in for hits, but you also have that home run risk with the fly balls. So we typically start labeling guys as ground ball pitchers, uh, quote-unquote, once they get above 47%, 48% or so. Um, a couple of stats about ground balls. Through through May 17th, there's, there were 10 starters with a 55% ground ball rate or higher uh, with more than 40 innings pitched. This includes guys like Dallas Keuchel at 65%, Tim Hudson at 62%, Sonny Gray's in there at 56%. Out of these 10 starters, six of them have ERAs below 320. So ground ball rate has obviously played a big part in that improvement overall. So when evaluating pitchers, it's always a good idea to take a look at ground ball rate and target those guys that are keeping the ball on the ground and keeping those ERAs down. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
0: Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and talks about various site metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Texas third-base prospect Joey Gallo, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the
2: Minor League Minute, we take a look at the Texas Rangers slugging third baseman Joey Gallo. When the Rangers made Gallo a first-round pick in the 2012 draft, They knew that he had outstanding raw power, but scouts and evaluators had serious concerns about his ability to hit for average and make consistent contact. At the plate, Gallo has quick hands and takes a vicious hack, and when he connects, he launches mammoth home runs to all parts of the park. In his pro debut, Gallo hit 22 home runs and 206 at-bats, but he also struck out 78 times. 2013 was really more of the same. Gallo smashed 40 home runs and 411 at-bats while missing a month of action with a groin strain, but he also hit 251 and struck out 172 times for a contact rate of just 60%. Defensively, he has good hands, a strong throwing arm, and decent lateral movement and really should be able to stick at third base over the long term, but he still needs to prove that he can hit for average and cut down on his alarming strikeout rate. So far, there have been some signs of progress in 2014. In 146 at-bats for high A Myrtle Beach, Gallo is hitting 342 and he's already stroked 18 home runs. He's also drawn 33 walks and has an OPS of 1.254. But there's still plenty of work to be done, as Gallo has whiffed 44 times, which is actually an improvement on his career 35% strikeout rate. Given his tremendous raw power, the Rangers will be continue to be patient with Gallo, and for those willing to trade home runs for a volatile batting average, Gallo is definitely worth keeping an eye on. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, Nick Richards, Matthew St. Germain, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, Brent Hershey has an eyeball report on such prospects as Mookie Betts, Christian Binford, and Tommy Stella. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Yankees right-handed starter Jose Ramirez, Cleveland first-base prospect Jesus Aguilar, and more. And if you want to check the minor league watch list, it highlights less heralded prospects who nonetheless have a clear path to the majors. Looking right now at Colorado right-hander Christian Bergman and Angels right-handed reliever Cam Bedrosian, who's been mentioned on this show by Jock Thompson. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. (laughs) And that's Baseball HQ Radio, our Tuesday Tout Edition for May the 20th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Show, the co-founder of rotowire.com and host of a fantasy show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Jeff Erickson is one of the great guys in a business full of great guys. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our metric minute commentator, and minor league analyst Rob Gordon had the minor league minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a research piece at BaseballHQ right now looking at metrics that combine fastball velocity with other measures to create new predictive metrics for pitchers. And, of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch News reports, Todd Zola, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be another Tuesday Tout edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
1: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today
2: Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.